he's supposed to die for the uh, royal family and to keep them safe. And he basically yeah. just gave Tom an up straight away. Went, yep, yep, no problem. You just take yeah. him. Just leave me alone. <laughs> I really love the idea of Theon being th- so thick that he's out outwitted by a couple of pet dogs. It's a fake autobiography, and it's called um, My Poor Life Choices by Theon Greyjoy. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. I haven't seen that. Well, see, if, I, if I can find choices. it, I'll, I'll post it on Twitter at Shark Liver Oil. Hello, it's part seven of Shark Liver Oil's coverage of A Clash of Kings, the second book in the A Song of Ice and Fire series by George R.R. R. Martin. This is a podcast about the book specifically, but we kind of follow it, we break it down into ten parts like the series did. Uh, this part is called A Man Without Honour, and we're reading from page 641, which is a chapter about Tyrion, which begins, If you die stupidly... I'll feed your body to the goats. And uh, we're going as far as page 689, which um, is a chapter about John and begins, It was dark in the Skirling Pass. I'm Matt. I'm Dave. Hello. Dave, are you ready for this? I'm ready for this. Joe, ready for this? Oh, wow. You're doing more than one impression in the first couple of minutes. You've gone gone from uh, upstaging my pathetic Tyrion Lannister impression straight to early 90s rap. Y'all ready for this? I love that song. I've got to be honest; it's a classic. Look, I we think get, that's not that's not in doubt. <laughs> we're less than a minute in, and we've already digressed. And <laughs> that's the shark liver oil way, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> yeah, um, <clears throat> as ever, we always put a little quick warning out. Um, this is a podcast specifically about the book, and um, the, the timelines don't completely tally up with what happens in the series. So, if you're wanting to hear about <clears throat> You know, what's going on in the series without spoilers ahead. Specifically for the series, Dave? You've come to the wrong place. But if you want to do a bit of, you know, if if you're just interested in the book, or if you've already seen the series and you want to know, you know, how it relates to the book, then this is the place to be. So, A Man Without Honour. Yeah, they named it after you and everything. (laughs) <laughs> hey, <laughs> this is a this is quite a short one uh, today. It's only about fifty pages, um, so we can we can take our time and meander through it rather than having to fly through at the breakneck pace that we did last time. Um, so let's kick off with this chapter about Tyrion, and he is sending um, his mounting clans, which are his sort of most loyal guards, off into the Kingswood to harass Stannis because Stannis's army is making its way towards King's Landing now. Um, Tyrion's a bit... I mean, he feels he has to do this because they're the best men for the job, but at the same time, that means all he's left with in King's Landing are bronze cell swords, which Bronn actually says to him, they'll kill for a knighthood, but don't expect them to die for it. Um, they're not the most reliable. And I like um, that. As, as a words coming from the guy who's hired these fellas as well. <laughs> Bron, I want you to hire me a guard of extremely reliable men. I will do that, but don't expect them to be in any sense uh, trustworthy. <laughs> you still give me the money, though, right? <laughs> yeah, but having said that, he's still got the City Watch, um, commanded by Jacqueline Bywater, who seems a particularly you know, useful and reliable guy. Um, and is not a girl. 
and he's not a girl, but he says um, about his own men, again, um, that many of them are have been recruited from you know, the streets and they're all um, just there really for a free meal and mm. um, they'll they'll be brave up to a point, but when sort of the battle goes against them, he says mm. um, they'll break and they'll break bad. And he, he doesn't mean it in a breaking bad sense. I was going to say a, that. They'll break in the way. <laughs> they'll break and they'll suddenly start manufacturing crystal meth of extraordinary purity. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's a bit of a worrying. Obviously, it's a terrifying time for the entire the entire city. Mm. The, the whole city is is sort of in a state of of low terror because they're waiting for this army to arrive of Stannis's. Um, there's some mm. last-minute desperate preparations being made for a siege, including Tyrion's decides to burn all the shacks just outside the city walls to make it harder for the walls to be scaled. He's really worried about this big yeah. sort of bunch of, of wooden shacks. and I mean, it's a tactically a good idea, but again, it's not very popular. Bit of a political misstep, isn't it? But they already hate him, so maybe he feels he's got nothing yeah. to lose. I have to say, though, right... Given how how like how mobile or not we've seen like knights and fighting men be so far in this book, you know we've had somebody trying to cross a river in full plate armor and just sinking to the bottom and things like that. Like, why would you burn wooden, presumably poorly built wooden shacks? Because anybody trying to climb over that in armor or with a sword, is more likely to end up at the bottom of a pile of broken sheds, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's more to do with the fact that they can sort of find cover behind that. You know, if, you, if, you, if you're trying to make your way oh. to a wall and um, arrows are raining down on you, it'd be very useful to have a lot of shacks just to hide under on your way. Actually, no, that's very true. I think you're on to something there. Yeah, because I, I, like you, had just thought... Well, I mean, I mean, I want to kind of make the castle look more imposing, and it's you know sheer walls and the rest of it. But I mean, you're not going to climb over that stuff, are you? Anyway, yeah. And to be honest, even with the taking shelter thing, surely you just wait till they start doing that and then just put a torch to it. Actually, yeah. Well, you're absolutely right. And do you know what we've done here? We've um. <laughs> We, we've outthought Tyrion Lannister. I think that's a day's work done, isn't it? Fuck off. <laughs> Take the rest of the day off. <laughs> I'm sure that unless there's another reason that neither of us have thought about, um, which is always possible. <laughs> well, how, uh, but I disagree, Matt. How could that? How could that be possible with two <laughs> such high-grade military minds as ourselves? <laughs> yeah. Um, there's also the, these three trebuchets, which they've um, trebuchet. Yeah, three trebuchets which they've built. Sorry, I thought you were. Just, I thought you were just commenting on how to pronounce that in a kind of really Frenchy kind of a way. That was trebuchet. <laughs> yes. I doubted myself and then realised there's no really other way of saying it. Trebuchet. Trebuchet. That's how they say it in America. Trebuchet. Um, trebuchet. Yeah, there are these three trebuchets called um, the the three whores because of the, the the welcome that they're going to give Stannis as he arrives. Um, oh, it's wit. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, what do you think of these last-minute preparations? Um, they're really exciting, because you have a real sense of the battle finally coming to a head. Hmm. However, all the way through this, I was kind of undercut slightly. You know how you said last time that my sort of, like, I've been extremely mistrustful 
of George Martin ever since Ned Stark died. And that's absolutely true. Like, whenever I think the story's going in a certain direction, I'm now not completely <laughs> with it. Because I'm like, yeah, but you fucker. I, don't, I, I know you. I don't trust you. And so, right, you know, there's that. And then there's the fact that um, two episodes back, we had the sort of mysterious shadow baby assassin of Stannis Baratheon. And reading this, I'm like... Well, it's just going to happen again, isn't it? Like, I'm not going to get myself hyped up for another huge battle that should be really exciting and then end up being like, uh, oh, oh, just Shadow Baby, was it? Oh. <laughs> well, you okay. I mean? um, mini spoiler alert, but you are going to get a hell of a good battle out of this. Yes! <laughs> Epic I'm, win! I don't, I don't, Come back, George, all is forgiven. <laughs> I don't think that's too much of a too much of a spoiler I mean it, it's, okay. and, and it's frankly happen, that helps so. me to engage with the story because otherwise <laughs> I would have been like yeah shadow babies fuck off they're all gonna die <laughs> um, okay so um, ahead of that they're doing some um, promoting because there is a spare spot in the Kingsguard now poor old Preston's been uh, been beaten to a bloody pulp and killed um, mm. and the guy who's replacing him is this Sir Balan Swan who do you remember He's, he's popped up once or twice so far, once making a joke about the king, which wouldn't exactly be a, a particularly good mark on his CV. But the other time, mm. every other time he's turned up, he seems to have handled himself pretty well. Um, mm. Even Tyrion says he thinks that's a pretty good appointment. Um, so mm. he is now a member of the King's Guard. Yeah. Um, so he, he replaces Preston Greenfield. And there's also another promotion to the King's Guard for Sir Osmond Kettleblack. Um, is this. This bloke who Cersei's put in there oh, yeah. as kind of a spy for her, but he's already yeah. been turned and he's already working as a double agent for uh, for Tyrion's. Not the most trustworthy of men to take up the the, the white cloak there. Absolutely, and um, I, I do quite like it though because he, for some reason, just the description of these characters for him and his brothers as oh, like yeah. hedge knights, which we we've seen before, just means shit knights. <laughs> um, and I, I kind of like the sort of weaselly honesty of purpose in somebody who's like kind of I'm not really a real knight and I'll sell whoever to whoever so what's the price instead of you know all of this kind of airy fairy kind of wave your hands in the air talk about how chivalry works and then you just end up killing everybody anyway <laughs> you know yeah yeah um, get, get ready for um, a lot of frustration with these characters because because they're called Osney Osfrid and what's the other one Another one, oh, Osmond, Osmond, Osney, and Os- oh, Osmond. Yeah. I thought it was something ridiculous, like Osniffle or something, like just some ridiculous name. Yeah, Sorry, well, it, well, it just means it's, they're very hard to tell apart. <laughs> so you know, you read it, you think, and oh, no, which one was that, and which one? Was, and I suppose it kind of makes sense because they're supposed to all look very similar, so you could almost confuse them anyway. But um, yeah, it's. Uh, you'll find yourself flicking to the appendices quite a lot when these boys turn up. Mm. Um, I, I, they, I, they're a nightmare in school, weren't they? These characters. <laughs> the first one turns up and he gets called Ozzy, and the second one turns up and he's little Ozzy, <laughs> and then the third one, what do you call him? I don't know. Oh, exactly. Ozzy Light. Ozzy Light. <laughs> That's too witty for the schoolyard. Yeah. <laughs> Just end up calling him shit Ozzy or something. <laughs> um, I was a bit confused when I started reading this, thinking, well. Who else has left the Kingsguard? Because you're supposed to only have seven, and it turns like there has been another departure, and it's it's good old Saboros Blout who's sort of the the most cowardly of the Kingsguard. 
he's the he's the guy who is whenever he's turned up, he's been fat, old, and rubbish um, in the King's Guard. He's kind of a an example or just a yeah a, a demonstration of just sort of how how diluted the King's Guards become. Because when Ned remembers the sort of old one, which was around the Mad King. He remembers mm-hmm. it with a, a sense of, you know, these were the seven greatest swordsmen in the land. And you get the feeling mm-hmm. that it's kind of fallen away a bit since then, um, especially yeah, when well, this guy's concerned. Yeah, and it, it seems to be a, a thing, doesn't it, where, like, a shit king gets a shit king's guard because mm-hmm. it's all about how, how the place is being run now. And it's, it's Cersei's 100% streak in appalling governance decisions. Yeah, although um, although Eris was a, the Mad King, you could never say he was anything other than a terrible king. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, no, actually, you're right. Yeah, that's very true. Um, I mean, yeah, tried tried yeah, to burn you, the city you have down. Me there. Yeah. there we go. But but but, but I think yeah, all right. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think in um, <clears throat> sorry in um, a couple of bits and pieces when people remember the Mad King, especially um, some of the old members of the Kingsguard. Um, I don't know. I, I think I, I vaguely remember at some point memories of the Mad King being he didn't used to be quite that bad, and he could have been he could be quite charming before he went absolutely mental. So maybe mm. may, maybe it's a bit more complicated than just he was a really bad king too. Yeah, maybe we don't really well, know enough yeah, about yeah, him, yeah, do we? Yeah. But from what we do yeah. know, it doesn't sound good. Mm. Mm-hmm. The reason Boris Blout's been dismissed from the King's Guard and thrown in a dungeon is. Um, he was escorting Tom, and remember, Cersei had sent Tom away um, to keep yeah. him safe. He'd been escorting him, and then um, there was this ambush set by Tyrion, and uh, <laughs> he just gave Tom an upstrike. He's supposed to die for the uh, royal family to keep them safe, and he basically yeah. just gave Tom an up straight away. I went, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, no problem. You just take yeah. him, just leave me alone. <laughs> Let's be cool, guys. Be cool. It's all right. It's, um, yeah, yeah, you, you take him. Yeah, yeah, fine. <laughs> he's, uh, he's. I mean, he's only the younger prince. It doesn't matter. No, you, no, you're the man. No, you're the man. You're you're, you're the man. Yeah. And if you just if you just contrast this with, remember um, Ned Stark's memory of that final battle at the Tower of Joy, where they uh, mm. where seven of Ned's sort of finest fighters killed the last three Kingsguard who were sort of fighting mm. to the death, even though everything had gone to shit already. And you just mm. see the difference about how things have changed now. Mm. Yeah, it's um, yeah, it, it's the it's the realm coming apart at the seams. Mm, yeah, it? you know, yeah. it's just you know you because and there's this thing about power in the center where you know this idea of absolute monarchy means being completely in control, mm. and that's certainly what Joffrey and Cersei think that it's about. <laughs> and it's just it's so much not yeah what that's about because if you make the kind of self important decisions that they've been making. Suddenly, you end up with a Kingsguard, like the the tippest of the toppest of your best troops, as a bunch of like cowardly drunkards, and you're not going to last for very long. No, um, T- Tyrion starts this rumor um, a- a- around. Or, well, so- someone's begun the rumor. I think Tyrion does about Stannis planning to burn down the Great Sept uh, because he because mm. he follows this Red God now. I mean, it's a rumor started by Tyrion just to to get the people on side a bit more, but um, it's it's probably true because he's not been sort of slow in burning down other. It's, it's not exactly one of these religions that believes in uh, intolerance, is it? The, the Red yeah, God one. 
they're not the sit down and have a chat about it types, are no. they? No. So um, he's probably right when he says that. Um, he, he also gets the, the other thing in this chapter. Tyrion gets a visit from the the guys who are making the wildfire, and they've made mm. loads more than Tyrion thought they could in a much mm. shorter amount of time. And mm. the guy says, the guy in charge of it, it um, can't remember his name, but the guy in charge of it says uh, that it's become easier to make of late. Uh, mm. Some of the spells they try to use to to create it have uh, become more potent. And he sort of makes his offhand comment saying, um, you've not seen dragons knocking about, have you? Because, <laughs> the, the, you know, the legend is that the ma- uh, magic seeped out of the world when the dragons died. Mm. And you can, you can almost see George Martin, can't you, gesturing to the people who are at the back of the room and having trouble paying attention. <laughs> magic! This one's about magic! Look, magic's coming back! Fucking magic! <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, the, the other thing is this: there was this plot which Varys has uncovered, which are um, these merchants, these wealthy members of the city, have planned mm. to open one of the gates when Stannis arrives and effectively let him into the city, so betray the betray the royal family. Uh, and they've they've known they've been sort of they're known as the Antlermen because uh, obviously this a stag is uh, is the sigil of of Stannis. Um, Such a rubbish name. It is a bit, isn't it? But yeah, it's a rubbish name. It's a rubbish plot as well because it's been uncovered. Okay, let's uh, move on to the next chapter, which is about Theon. Um, And Theon, yeah, Theon. Oh, Theon! Every time we do a chapter about Theon, it's sort of followed by a. (sighs) Is is Theon becoming the um, Bailey of uh, of uh, of a Game of Thrones? Um, yeah, for those who haven't heard the uh, Night Circus podcasts, Bailey is this character who went, <laughs> is, a, is, is a character in a book called The Night Circus, which we did in three parts of a podcast. And basically, every time he turned up, things just got really boring. <laughs> 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 you were dreading seeing his name appear because you knew it was just like yeah, five and pages like, of rubbish. In the fine morning, Bailey was. Oh. <laughs> All right, let's just get through it. Uh, maybe I'm being unfair because I think, like, I I don't kind of sigh whenever Theon's on the page. I'm not like this is going to get really dull, but I am like, oh for fuck's sake, because he's not. I'm not frightened by Theon. I'm not like, oh god, what's he going to do? Yeah. Because um, I think the person he's going to do most damage to is going to be himself. Mm. But. Um, but by that same token, I am a bit like, oh, this is just. Theon, you suck. Surprising yeah. no one. <laughs> yeah, I, I my, my by, by sighing when I said it, I meant it in a way of yeah, um, just thinking Theon. I'm not angry. I'm just disappointed. That's it, isn't it? <laughs> That's exactly it. Theon inspires in everybody <laughs> the same response as your primary school year two teacher had to you, like scribbling all over the wall with crayons or something. <laughs> There's a brilliant, there's a brilliant, um, is it a meme? Uh, mm. Yeah, I'm getting down with the kids here. There's a brilliant yeah, uh, meme uh, on uh, on Twitter, which has been doing the rounds. It's a fake autobiography, and it's called um, My Poor Life Choices by Theon Greyjoy. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. I haven't seen that. Well, see, if, I, if I can find choice. it, I'll, I'll post it on Twitter, at Shark Liver Oil. Do it. We'll put it out. Brilliant. <laughs> it's really funny, though. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
And he's just got a picture of him from the TV series, like like looking all angry. Because <laughs> that's but, what he looks like. I mean, and they did a great job casting Alfie Allen in that, because if, if there's one thing that boy can do, it's pout. And that's, yeah. that's Theon's entire character. He's like a pouty toddler who <laughs> happens to have been taught how to use a sword really well. <laughs> My poor life choices. <laughs> That's really funny. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, so yeah, we go to Theon. I mean, yeah, I don't think it, I don't find these chapters dull. I'm, I'm because yeah. I, I do still care about you know Bran and and Winterfell as a whole as a place, and I'm, I'm hoping yeah, that they can true, true. get rid of this guy as soon as possible. And you know, with a bit of luck, you know, Sir Roderick's going to turn up and uh, and sort him out because we're still in the field. This luck. guy, Theon wakes up and in sort of early hours of the morning and he realises something's wrong straight away because these dire wolves have been howling ever since um, ever since he's taken the castle and now they're not howling anymore and he immediately is sort of worried and it turns out that he's right to be so because Bran and Rickon along with Hodor and Osha, the wildling woman have escaped mm. This is a bit reverse, right under his nose. Yeah, and, and he's he's two parts angry and one part terrified aroused. here. No, <laughs> yeah, he's always one he's part always aroused. One part aroused but, the isn't he? What a knob! <laughs> but yeah, he's ter- he's terrified because if they escape, he's gonna you know how is it going to make him look? Yeah. And it's uh it's something for the North to rally around. Yeah, and he's he's only got a tentative grasp on Winterfell at best at the moment. Yeah, what's he, he got there? Thirty men, something like that. Yeah, I mean, so few men that he's only, he can only just about man the walls. Mm. And only the inner walls and, 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 as well, but, hey. Ex- yeah, exactly. And um, by manning the walls, he doesn't even have, have enough men to watch Bran and Rickon, which is why they've managed to escape in the first place. It's There was a bit of me that, you know, when, when uh, Theon turns up in Bran's bedroom and it's just like, I've done it, I've taken over the castle, boom. I was like... yeah. I'm not happy about this happening, but it is quite impressive. You know, like, the, he must have had some pretty mad strategy. He must have really manned up and, you know, really worked something out. But he's so stupid through the whole of this chapter. He, he And it shows just what a dumb decision it was. To bring 30 guys all the way inland to take Winterfell. It's a, taking Winterfell is a good aim. Mm. But if you can't hold Winterfell, you're the kid who didn't understand elementary strategy, which in the middle of a war yeah. is not good for your reputation. And that's the problem, is that throughout this whole thing, all Theon wants to do is burnish his reputation. Like, all of his internal monologue is about, like, oh, I'd better do that, otherwise I'm going to look stupid. And it's he makes mm. some quite smart deductions at certain points. Like, he's not stupid, he's not slow, but he's just totally blinded by his need for everybody to love him. And, and it ends yeah. up with the rest of this chapter just being, like, one of a series of punches to the bollocks for him. Yeah, I mean, he's he's trying to he's he's trying to almost become a, a like a Ned type of lord now, isn't he? He's say, he's yeah. thinking when he's thinking about it, he's thinking I've been really um I've I've been really merciful to everybody here, and um I think later mm. on, um, Reek suggests that he you know he flays someone um in the typical mm. Bolton way, and uh, Theon says there'll be no <clears throat> no flaying while I'm lord, like really loudly yeah. as if it's going to endear himself to everybody. And um, mm. I quite like the fact that when he's when he's musing on how um, upset he is because uh, nobody likes him, even though he's been so nice to everybody, he considers that his only um, 
he's hardly killed anyone apart from the Septon who he threw down a well. And, yeah. and he's surprised that everybody hates him. Uh, well, yeah, all I did was drown him. It was it was religious. It was witty as well. <laughs> Funny is what I was. You don't love me for it. Yeah. I tell you what I was thinking. There's there's one bit where he, he goes out in the yard in this scene and um and you know, he's he's trying to bully bully everybody into telling him where the boys have run off to and trying to find out who let them out. And there's this um there's there's this kind of paragraph where it just he looks around the crowd and he sees all these different people. And I was feeling quite sorry for him during this little bit. Yeah. Because it was like um you know, he's looking at somebody who taught him how to use a sword and he's stony-faced and he's looking at somebody else who he used to, you know, learn to drink with and he's looking at him as though he doesn't know who he is. Mm. And I was like, oh, man, there's real pathos here. Like, he's, you know, he's 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 fallen between two stools and he's specifically come back and, and kind of betrayed, the, the you know, one half of his life. Mm. And then he looks at... I think it's the baker's wife. Yeah. And it says, uh, the baker's wife, who was his first, and even she didn't look nice about him. I'm like, fuck you, you <laughs> knobhead. Well. Cuckolding son of a bitch. <laughs> How old is he as well? I mean, he must have been like 14, 15. Sort of a fucking 14, 15-year-old goes, she's married, I'll have her. What? What? Theon, you've lost me. You, for a moment, you had me, and then you lost me, because you're a cop. I love it. Oh, that's the thing you get angry about. Yeah? <laughs> I just, because it came in the middle of that that whole kind of like, you could almost hear the strings. You know, there was quite a big violin being played. Yeah. And then when it got to that sentence, the violin went from being quite big to the smallest violin in the world. <laughs> I love this. I love it. It's uh, betrayed his his best friend of ten years. Yeah, mitigating circumstances. Uh, take taken the home um, from the the place where he, he grew up and was looked after. Uh, you know, not too bad. Killed a lot of people there, including chucking a septum down a well and stabbing the armor in the middle of the throne room. Yeah, not bad. Extramarital affair. What a bastard! Son of a bitch. <laughs> I would no. You misrepresent me, sir. All of that stuff was just like. All right, that was happening. I was like, okay, Theon's being a cock. And then there was a moment where the light broke through and it was quenched. Yeah, yeah. Um, a man of few redeeming qualities. I think we That's say. true. Should we, can we inaugurate that as a search? Looking for Theon Greyjoy's bright side. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, he's got, a, by all accounts, he's got a massive cock. Yeah, yeah. There you go. There's a bright side. That's, yeah. Um, the when Reek is, uh, is uh, obviously Reek is this uh, old servant of the bastard of Bolton who has come over to Winterfell after the bastard was killed. Um, mm. Reek uh, says that Roose Bolton. I just love this. Um, Roose Bolton, a man who isn't known for his mercy, was known to always say, um, "A naked man has few secrets, and a flayed man has none." Um, when he's trying to convince Theon to start flaying people alive, um, which is just shows the true horrific nature of elements of this this time, I suppose. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and and I, what's going on in his head there, where he steps out and he's like, "I'm going to chance my hand here and try and advance myself by advocating the worst kind of torture I can think of." <laughs> yeah. Um, and 
Like, I yeah, I, I don't know. I think, it's, it, that's not the kind of office politics I recognise. No, I think I think Reek is is pretty much just a, insane, um, and it, yeah. it doesn't really. It, I don't think I don't think is that there's any political strategy there with him. Um, mm. Although I don't know, maybe we'll see. Um, so so Theon decides to saddle up and chase after this this fleeing party. I don't think I I don't think I actually said all of them last time. So there's Osha, who's the um, the wildling woman. There's Hodor, the big, you know, hulking, great, uh, simple guy. There's obviously Bran and Rickon. And then there's Jojen and Mira as well, the two Kranigmen, um kids. Mm. So they're all on the run. And they've not taken horses, so Theon thinks they, they can't have gotten far. I'll be able to run them down. And um, he takes one of the Frey twins along with him because he's really keen to help out. Uh, no loyalty mm. towards Bran at all, obviously. And he takes uh, Maester Lewin along as well, um, just for the just for the simple fact he doesn't trust Lewin to be on his own in the castle. He thinks he'll create some kind of rebellion. Um, yeah. On the way, Lewin tries to sort of he's in he's in Theon's ear, trying to get him to be more merciful than he already is. Basically, saying you know when you catch the boys, you're not going to kill them, are you? They're too valuable. The same goes for Jojen and Mira. They're they're really valuable to the Kranigmen down in the south. Um, the, the interesting mm. thing with those two, that the argument that Lewin makes is that um, these two, Georgian and Mira, are the the children of Howland Reed, who's the guy in charge mm. of all the Kranigmen. Those people mm. live; they're the guys who live in the swamp around Moat Kalim, mm. and basically, they can make life really difficult for. Um, is it uh, is it Asher who's gone to take that castle? Uh, yes, so, yeah, it is. So he's basically saying, you know, keep 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 the Kranigmen in line by not killing their two children, hmm. um, and you know, and he also says, you know, oh, and, and Hodor has never hurt anybody. Don't do anything to him. And Theon's like, yeah, okay, but he he says, Osha is going to die once he catches her, regardless. Hmm. So I mean, still, there's there's an element here of um, you could make the argument that Theon isn't ruthless enough and that's why he's failing at this or he's struggling with it um he he thinks um obviously the direwolves have escaped with these with this group as well and he thinks he should have had them killed straight away because they weren't serving any purpose and they're obviously these two dangerous animals and he didn't do it Mm. um and there's, there's there are always a few elements of that where you think a more ruthless character than theon would have actually had a bit more success especially at the early stages here yeah, I think that's true. Although I think it's it's not so much more ruthless. I think ruthlessness is necessarily the answer, as much as it is, um, as as much as it is experience is the answer, or having good advice. So this is the thing: is that Rob's mm. younger than Theon and has had a very successful military career to this point because he's surrounded by all of these uber badasses who he had yeah. to get on side, but did the right things to get them on side, and now he's got now he's got this enormous force and he gets mm. good advice whereas Theon hasn't got anybody on side he's like he's he's kind of nominally at the top of the military machine where nobody apart from Dagmar Leftjaw um seems to think that he's anything other than a totally pathetic little weaselly you know squit and um 
And so he's so he's kind of in this position where I don't think he necessarily needed to be ruthless. He just needed to not be trying to conquer as the exile prince of the Iron Islands anywhere else in the country because it's just a recipe for mm. failure. I can't see how it yeah. would have worked, you know. Yeah, um, Theon has a, has real trouble trying to track down um, these this group, and in the end, they end up they end up following these two. Um, these two tracks of the wolves, but it turns out the wolves have just sort of wandered off on their own. And they've somehow, the direwolves have stuck to the river to, to effectively lose the scent. And they're, they're saying, you know, wolves don't do this. They cross a river, but they don't stick to it to yeah. try and get away. Um, and it suggests again that maybe maybe there's some brand involvement there. Oh, uh, um, you know, I didn't see that. That was very silly of me. Because I was going to say, I really love the idea of Theon being th- so thick that he's out outwitted by a couple of pet dogs i just find that really pleasing but yeah no of course it, of course it is brand doing his thing and getting to run off and away yeah um the the cats so that they can't find this group and there are various reasons that are put forward one is that jojen and mira have this secret knowledge of sort of avoiding detection because they're kranigman mm. and that's basically what you know kranigman do all the time mm. um there's also um you know Calls about um, Osha. Maybe she knows a few tricks, you know, from the north, from from north of the wall, mm. to avoid detection. But either way, the upshot is they can't find them. Mm. But then Reek uh, suggests that they may be hiding at this this um, Croft. Is it Crofter's house? It's this little cottage mm. out in the middle of nowhere, mm. um, which they know about. And there's this man. There's this like bloke and his wife there, and a couple of kids. Yeah, and he says. Maybe they're hiding there. He also shows um, Theon this sack with, a, I think, a cloak in it and some kind of brooch. Mm. And this makes Theon realise that they probably are hiding at this place. I didn't understand. I've read this through a few times and I didn't really understand Me neither. why this suddenly clicked into place with Theon. Yeah, I went back and flicked through and saw, you know, are there any references to this sort of thing or anything like that? And no, not a thing. So presumably, this, like the Shadow Baby, is going to be something that's going to be tantalizingly cryptic and then we're finally gonna find out about yeah it. maybe that's again he, he he says the name of one of the one of the ironborn guys when he when he sort of sees this brooch and yeah but i, I don't know why he's important maybe but maybe it's, we find it's a later. wolf brooch right yeah yeah right but beyond that i mean i don't know how it ties in with one of his members of his guard Mm. Anyway, yeah, no, I'm definitely um, as as they're riding off to 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 check this house. Lewin says reminds Theon that you know he promised to be merciful, and Theon says rather ominously, "Mercy was for the morning before they made me angry because he's been tracking them all day, and now he's pissed off, and you're worried that if he does find them, <laughs> he's not going to be particularly um, merciful now." Mm. Yeah, 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 and. I would like it better if I had a little bit of insight on that because I do sense that he's about to he's about to go off the deep end, and because of that, and and for some reason because of this brooch that hasn't been explained to us, so I I kind of have a little bit of a I'm going to see something really horrible happen next, and I'm not going to know why. Yeah, yeah. L- let's move on to John. Um, John is on this mission um, with Corin Halfhand and his group of. Effectively, commandos, aren't they? There's this guy called Stone Snake who can seem to climb sheer cliffs without making a sound, and there's other two called Eben, and there's another guy as well. I can't remember his name, um, but they, these are like the, the select group, aren't they, of rangers? 
and John's been taken along with them. Yeah. Do you have a problem with that? Because I think that was a bit of a um, rash move on Corin's part. But maybe it's just because he wants the direwolf around more so than John. That makes a lot of sense. Um, I, I think it was... It, maybe this is a little bit of kind of boys' own magazine kind of... Uh, like you know wish fulfillment you know mm. you got the young you got the young guy and of course he's going to go along with them because otherwise otherwise your protagonist wouldn't be yeah. there but um no i think it makes sense you know he's young he's he's not an idiot you know he has shown himself to be able to handle himself on many occasions yeah. and and he's got a wolf yeah so he's like he's not going to be a liability and he's got a really kick-ass weapon i think without the wolf it'd probably be like oh i don't know yeah maybe no, no, stay behind. Yeah. With the wolf, it's like, yeah. Yeah, and I suppose um, it, it's perfectly possible that Corin um, sat down with the Lord Commander before John arrived in that conversation and was saying, asking about him, saying, you know, what's he like? Is he is he reliable? Mm. Anyway. Um, yeah. Yeah. So they, they see this fire on this cliff, um, so they know that there are some wildlings watching this, what's called the Skirling Pass, which is how you get into the Frostfangs where all the wild things yeah. are and um mm. he sends two men up to to basically kill the the watchers one of them being john uh yeah. so they, they do this long him and stone snake do this long terrifying climb um it's another one of these it reminded me of catlin's climb to the eerie uh, in the last book it's just yeah. this <laughs> one false step and you and you fall into your death kind of yeah. climb. He does it very well as well, doesn't he? Like the writing of mm. this particular piece. I, I thought yeah. it was really good. It was um intimidating. Um and uh and then when he reaches the top you have a small moment of like, yeah Because <laughs> yeah. you know, George Martin's previous would lead us to assume that what's gonna happen is George, uh, John's gonna take one step and plummet to his death. <laughs> and come yeah. back as a wildling, as a as a white walker or something, you know. So they, they they manage this climb. John, as he's climbing, is thinking back of sort of his decision to come on this mission and how terrifying it is. But he's also quite pleased he's gone because he's seen these like he, he's seen these great he's had these great experiences along the way as well. It's kind of like a traveller will say, you know, he's he's seen these great uh, bits of scenery and breathtaking, beautiful parts of North of the Wall, which obviously very few men ever see. Because uh, yeah. almost no one goes north. Um, yeah, yeah. Now they get to the top and they come across this campfire, and there are three watchers, um, and this is this gives them a pause for thought because they were only supposed to be they're, they're only normally two, um, so they're gonna it's gonna make it harder for them to overcome, yeah, you know, because yeah. there are only two of them, and the danger is there's a one of them will have a horn to yeah. um, to warn others, so yeah. they've got to. They've got to kill everybody before anyone gets a chance to make much of a noise. Mm. <laughs> and John's never killed anybody before. This is his yeah. first battle. Yeah. And um, you really get that sense of how easily everything could go wrong here. Yeah. And as as John and Stone are getting ready to attack, you're thinking this is this is this could very easily go wrong. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I really I really felt for for John here as he's sort of stealing himself for it, thinking this is your, this is it. Don't don't mess up, you know. Yeah, fifteen years old. Yeah, and being like, I have to kill now. Yeah, even in this world, that's like that's a that's a difficult moment. Never mind the fact that it's taking place on an exposed icy hilltop with massive plummets. 
yeah. to either side. Like, yeah. great scene. I Again, I wish they'd done it in the TV series this way, because it's like... Yeah. Just the fact yeah. of having a battle like that on a middle piece of, of rock night. like this in the middle of the night where it is... And mm. I mean, I suppose it, that means it's more dramatic in text than it would be on the screen, but still, yeah. I'd love to have watched it. Yeah. So um, this, they, 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 they attack and they kill two of the, two of the men and John grabs the third, realises it's a girl and sort of takes her prisoner instead. Yeah. It, it's, I just like, I like this line where John has a sort of a split second to admire the, uh, the courage of the first guy mm. who he's the guy wearing the horn mm-hmm. and when um, Stone Snake advances on him, his first instinct is to grab the horn and blow it rather than grab and his sword himself. and defend yeah, yeah, himself. Yeah, yeah. And that is really, that is really, it's just a very small little, um, like I say, mm. snapshot, but it's, it's just, just rounds the wildlings a bit. They're not just these monsters mm-hmm. who, you know, are, are there to yeah. be killed. Um, they can, there are these, the real people with elements of, of bravery in yeah, them as well. Yeah, yeah, it's really, that's really good. And it's the first time we've really seen that in the book because we haven't really interacted with, we've interacted with Osha and that's it. Um, and yeah. I suppose that guy, what's he called, um, who shags his own yeah, well, yeah, exactly. It's like, that's where we've been so far, <laughs> isn't it? Um, and now yeah. this. And, and I like that because I, I, it would be really boring to put all of this time and effort into setting up a battle and then have it be a battle that's just against sort of two-dimensional cardboard cut-out nasty people. You know, you have to have, hmm. as you've had everywhere else, people on both sides that you're like, uh, you know, I'm kind of rooting for them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so he takes this he takes this girl called Egret prisoner, and um, and then they you know Stone Snake says you know there was no uh, instruction to take prisoners and John says well there wasn't any not to either so they decide to wait for Corin to arrive because they're climbing up behind them and once Corin arrives he'll decide what to do with her. Um, while they're mm-hmm. waiting, John gets Egret to tell him a story, and. Um, which is a bit of a weird thing to do with a prisoner, but I mean, I suppose he's a teenager yeah. with a, you know, he's a yeah. kid. Like I don't think he really knows what to do, does no. he? And and he's far more likely, sort of emotionally, to ask that question than he is to be like. I mean, I mean, let's let's not be, I mean, let's not be coy about it. Most other people, I think, from the Knights Watch in this position, would probably be trying to rape her, and John's not going to do that, and. But in a way, his training as a as a member of the Night's Watch hasn't taught him to do anything else. So he's like, <laughs> yeah. um, I'm not going to do that. Uh, tell me a story. <laughs> and this, I think there's something quite admirable in that. Um, and and actually, I see in this whole kind of interaction, uh, admirable, admirable not to rape somebody. But, you know, when you're from this kind of place mm. um, and that kind of norm and you're a kid, to be like, no, that's fucked up. I'm not doing it. Um is very is a very good thing to do, um, but I tell you what what I saw is in that and and in the fact that he takes her prisoner instead and shows mercy is that's Ned Stark written all over. Oh yeah, isn't it? definitely. You know what I mean? Like it's uh, it's exactly what Ned would have done. Mm, and yeah. isn't it interesting seeing Theon trying to be like Ned and then lose his temper, mm. and John tries to be like Ned and ends up getting a story. Yeah, and it's yeah. just you know to a certain extent you can you act the way you were raised I suppose Theon yeah. was raised to be self-important and twitchy and unpleasant yeah and then he went to Winterfell whereas John was raised at Winterfell from day one yeah um th- this this story is uh, it's a cracking story it's got everything it's uh, it's it's quite funny and light at the start and then it becomes quite dark and uh, 
and and nasty by the end. Mm. Um, and it's a it's re- it's a great story because it just shows about the kind of legends that grow up among the wildlings as well, in the same way that you get these legends further south. Mm. Um, so d- just to paraphrase, it's basically this um, this wildling um, leader mm. who went south of the wall disguised as a singer and um, and ended up stealing the daughter of the, of the Lord of Winterfell. Mm. And then um, she fell in love with him and mm. he ended up returning her with a baby. Yeah, and then when the baby grew up to become the Lord of Winterfell, which mm. mean means there's wildling blood in, um, in the Lords of Winterfell. Uh, when he grew up, he ended up meeting his dad in the field, and his dad wouldn't wouldn't kill his son, so his son killed the dad. If you know what yeah. I mean. Yeah. Um, and then when the son came back, the son's mum. <laughs> it's quite hard to explain <laughs> this. Killed herself in grief, and um. In the end, um, the the wildling boy who became the prince, um, who became the Lord of Winterfell, mm. um, was killed by one of his own men, and his skin ended up being worn as a cloak by one of his by one of his uh, old bannermen. And um, there's only one bannerman <laughs> <laughs> who likes to wear skins as cloaks. And it's the Bolton, so it suggests there's. I mean, there's this checkered history between the Boltons and. Um, and yeah. the Starks, and I think that's that's a alludes to that, doesn't it? I think centuries ago, um, the Starks finally got them in line and stopped the business of this removing skin of your enemies and worming yeah. them, um, and the more barbaric practices. Yeah. But I think with all great legend legendary stories, there are sort of little nuggets and elements of truth in the story, but also it's all quite fantastical. It's quite obvious why wildlings would tell stories to each other about how. Um, you know they got one over in a massive way on the Lord of Winterfell, and in fact, part of our blood is now part of yeah, that line. And they think they're so much better than us, but actually they are us. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it, you're right. It's a fantastic story, very bloody bedtime story. And, it's great. Yeah, yeah. And it just serves really well just to flesh out again the yeah, wildlings, yeah, yeah. who it? otherwise would be a bit, um, could be very kind of one dimensionally evil cackling yeah. crones you know yeah when Corin arrives he basically says to Egret, you know if I if, if the roles were reversed what would you do to me and she admits that she yeah. would kill him so he says you know we can't keep her in prisoner and feed her um, you've got mm. to kill her and he, he tells John to do it yeah and then they they leave John on his own to do the to do mm. the job Um. And Egret sort of faces this quite heroically and says, strike hard and true, Crow, or I'll come back to haunt you. Yeah. Um, and John's sort of all ready to do it. And in the end, he, he can't go through with it. And he, he frees her instead. Yeah. Um, now, there are two things here. One is, obviously, it's hard to criticise John too much because, you know, like you say, he's a teenager and he's... He's been raised on this honourable pursuit. Although you would say that it is within sort of the moral framework to to, to go through mm. with this. Um, the other thing is knowing that and knowing that he's only a teenager. Mm. Um, why why doesn't Corin watch him do it to make sure he goes through with it? Um, I have a sense that he's maybe he's so kind of 
uh, numbed against this sort of cruelty that he's just like, of course it will happen. I'm not even going to, you know, there's no question. She needs mm. to die. It's self-evident. Yeah. He's going to kill her. Um, yeah. Uh, but but possibly, I mean, I don't, I'd really have a very good read on Corin Halfhand at this point, except that he seems to be like almost inhumanly capable of operating without any comfort at all. Um, mm. But maybe, maybe this is this is actually good leadership, and he's just like sort of the last thing the kids needs is me standing there going, "You're going to be a man or what?" And you know what yeah. he needs is just to be able to make a decision and live with it. So I don't know. I mean, it, it could be either way, couldn't it? Yeah, um, there's an element of, of in the series in this scene. Um, I, I was speaking to someone who who said that uh, it could be the it could be that. As you said before, normally when someone in the Night's Watch captures someone mm. like this, they would probably mm. rape them, and it's just to leave him to it to do that before oh, he kills yeah. it, and that's what Corin thinks he's waiting oh, to that's do. Horrible. But yeah, very possible. Which is yeah. you, you don't you don't kind of want to believe that because you come to quite like mm. Corin, but um, I think realistically yeah. that is very I think, possible. I think definitely onto something there. Um, I tell you what I noticed though was. Um, this scene in the TV series was quite flirtatious, and it was very, very clear that John was not in control. You know that he was still a kid and he was being pushed and manipulated by this woman. Um, and in this, she's much more kind of passive. There's not, there's not a spark. There's just a kind of like, "You're going to kill me." Yeah, I thought so. Go on then. You know, like she's much more kind of accepting of it, um, and much less yeah. kind of. Uh, willing to do whatever it takes to escape. Um, hmm. Yeah. So I. Yeah. So I. I mean, it's just a. It's a weird little thing, isn't it? That in the TV series, this is all kind of about power plays, and it's kind of sexy back and forth a little bit. And whereas hmm. in in this, he's not attracted to her in the slightest. She's not even trying that on. She's just like, you're probably going to kill yeah. me. Yeah. All right. <laughs> I would too. Yeah. Uh, the final chapter for today. Uh, is Sansa and she is in the Godswood and she she out, basically outside of King's Landing now the Kingswood which is across mm. the river this massive forest um, is almost entirely on fire mm. now um, for a couple of reasons one that I think Stannis is responsible for some of it to try to um, to try to smoke out the uh, you know these these mountain clans who Tyrion sent over to harass him I think they're doing quite a good job because um, Stannis is putting various areas to the torch to try and catch mm. them now. Um, and also, um, Tyrion's burning down various parts of the landscape to basically make sure that Stannis has nothing to eat, um, that the army is starving by the time it reaches the gates of King's yeah, Landing. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, 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 you know, just, just classic... Um, scorched earth policies, yeah, isn't and it? Um, and because we've kind of been out there a little bit, you know, we've we've now been out and about on these roads and in these woods and things. Um, I'm thinking of the people mm. who are living there and the people who have been sent off yeah. from the walls and stuff. And um, I think that's a that's a really good indicator of how much time George Martin's put into making making the world real instead of making it just about a king yeah. and some other kind of people who were not quite as well in focus in the background, you know. Um, hmm. doesn't do a lot for Stannis's reputation, does it? Really, scorched earth policies. Um, no, especially when apparently he's got this flipping this magic secret assassin. D- 
Dealy, which he's not using. <laughs> Was he? You need to get really, really close, or what? Um, because, because then, well, because then, I, actually, I, actually, I, I do, I do think you need to get really close because that was the whole point of Davos taking Melisandre across the water to Storm's End. Well, it was, it? but specifically because Storm's End, because of, I mean, well, presumably because of all this back and forth with the gods and and the foundation of Storm's End and all that sort of thing. Um, uh, she needed to be inside because she said there were all sorts of spells in the walls. Um, oh, yeah, that's And true. Yeah. as I understand, the building of King's Landing wasn't terribly magical at all. It was just, I'm going to get as many men as I can <laughs> to build it, and then I'm going to kill them all. Um, so, <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know. I, and if it is, I mean, fair enough, maybe you do have to be close, whatever. But if, if it is that he could be doing this, and instead he's burning burning the woodland... It's not doing him any PR favours at all, is it? He's, somebody needs to sit down with him and tell him about the words winning the propaganda war, because right now he is not winning the propaganda war. <laughs> no, that's true. Um, the, we're also here, speaking of not doing very well in the propaganda war, he burned down the, the godswood. Um, of course he did. In, in Storm's End. Because there's, so, there's, uh, there's nothing for healthy religious debate like setting something on fire. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, yeah, things aren't going particularly... Uh, th- in terms of the propaganda war, things aren't going very very well for Stannis, I suppose. Mm. There's this big plan to get Sansa away from the city, um, which involves her drunken um, Florian, the the guy who... Remember, the Sedontos, who's a, used to be a knight and he's now a jester, um, and he's trying to get Sansa out of the city. And he, he's saying he, he's spoken to this guy who can get a ship, but it's, they're going to have to wait until the perfect moment and it isn't time mm. yet. Um, what do you think about this guy? Do you trust him for a start? Um, well, as we've visited, uh, trust is an issue for me um, in, uh, in George Martin novels. Um, mm-hmm. Jury's out for me, still. Um, I, I yeah. I mean, w- were you in Sansa's position now? Would you be saying yes, take me away, or would you say I don't want anything to do with you because I don't trust you? He's. I don't know what the opposite <laughs> of creepy is. He's not uncreepy, is he? In this scene, you know what I mean. Like he goes for the kiss, and um, yeah. and <laughs> that's troubling for a start because she's twelve. Um, and on the one hand, you really do want to believe that something could finally go right for Sansa, because I, I now, I now sort of feel like she's kind of served her time in purgatory for being such a, a an insufferably prissy, um, blind and stupid little girl in the first book. I'm now like, uh, you know, okay, probably, probably, probably three chapters into this book, you'd served your time, and now you can go. So I do want something nice to happen for her. Um, but at the same time, I'm not certain I want it to be through this fella. Because what's his angle? He's so stupid that he turns up for a psychopathic king for a tournament, pissed and not even in his armour yet. Like, doesn't tell you a lot about (laughs) being a strategic genius, does it? So, should she be talking to him? I I don't know whether it's a good idea, but what what other option does she have? Yeah, I, I suppose it's you're right. It's sort of take the support where you find yeah, it. I suppose yeah, at the yeah, moment. Very true. Um, 
But yeah, um, I remember when I was reading this first time thinking it doesn't sit quite right with me, this, but what else can you do? Um, th- th- this this siege of King's Landing is actually beginning now because Stannis's vanguard, which is the part of the army that goes ahead of the mm. rest of it, the, the first guys into the, the fray, mm. if you like, um, they've arrived at the other side of the mm. river now. So they're sort of looking across the mm. water and... Um, and the, the the point is at the moment, strategically, they've got to get across the water and they don't have any means to do yeah. that yet. And Stannis has got to get his ships in there to to, to ferry his army across yeah. now. Um, now, the King's Landing, there's this blanket, as we said before, this blanket of fear over the city now because people who survived the last rebellion are remembering that they opened the gates to the Lannisters and the Lannisters put the city to yeah. the sword. And that was when they yeah. surrendered. And this time they're meaning to fight, so they can expect no mercy from Stannis yeah, this time. Yeah. Um, Sansa climbs up to the sort of <clears throat> one of the towers to look out over the city to to see it all, and she she kind of gets semi suicidal. She almost falls, and it you kind of get the feeling that she she doesn't sort of try and throw herself from the yeah. tower, but also she doesn't exactly try and stop herself when she starts to yeah. slip, and then. Uh, the hound is there yeah. again. He's kind of seems to always be hanging around her, which is kind of creepy. Yeah, um, and stops her from yeah. falling. And yeah, this all the other times when the hound has just sort of turned up to do something a little bit cryptic and possibly positive and possibly very negative um, in Sansa's life, um, it's always been like, oh, okay, he's there because the king's there. But now he's just drunk and happens to be wandering through the same part of the castle as her, and it's like, uh, yeah. mm, what? <laughs> mm. Um Yeah, it it doesn't like this the staging of this is a little bit iffy. And I I think that's kind of made up for by the fact that uh, about halfway through this scene, she says to herself something which I think is really the key to the whole character of the hound, which is that he's just he's a dog and um he mm. will uh he will die defending his masters but he will growl if they ever try to pet him. And and you yeah. really see that. Like, he's concerned for her safety, and then she says something nice, and he's just, like, incredibly crude and 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 kind of sharp in return. Um, yeah. And it just adds up even more to him being a fascinating character, but a fascinating character that I don't trust a single inch, drunk or sober. Yeah. He's, you know, I I believe he will do horrible things. Has done horrible things. Will do more of them. Yeah, you feel he's on he's on the edge of doing something dreadful to Sansa all yeah. the time, and he's got this sort of um, this storm of emotions going yeah. through him where he he's, he's got so he's got all this yeah. hatred, and um, the sight of Sansa, who's um, obviously the opposite of everything mm. he is, and still has this sort of belief and innocence yeah. and um, Sorry, and, and that, that's all sort of riling inside him yeah. isn't it as well and it, it makes him two, in one part want to sort of bash that out of her and, yeah. and, and sort of kill that yeah. part of her and on the other hand there's something that deep I think there's something that kind of attracts him to her as yeah. well um, and it's all it's all sort of wrapped up in this just ball of yeah. fury and it just means that it's really unpredictable and it feels like he's always on the edge of doing something terrible. Yeah, he really does. And um, 
I tell you what I think it is actually. I've just just thought of that while from what you said is I think it's confessional. I think when he talks to her, he generally ends up letting slip something else about what's happened to him in the past, or yeah. um, or just something else about his worldview, which he seems to be utterly desperate to tell to somebody. Which and and this world mm. just doesn't contain a mechanism for somebody like him who has suffered as he has suffered and caused the kind of suffering he has he's caused either to externalize mm. their pain or confess what they've done and it seems to be weighing on him and here's mm. this person like you say is absolutely opposite to him and who he's like well I, you know i think somewhere in the back of his head it's like if there's anybody i can if there's anybody that i can say this stuff to it's her because she's scared of me mm. and i can just kill her anyway if i want so yeah. sure um yeah, yeah. I, I think i think he also says some of this stuff to upset her as well he likes yeah, upsetting yeah, you her something there actually um, yeah in in the same way that he protects her sometimes because he he wants to keep her safe, mm. but also he wants to he, he so, there's this sort of malicious low thrill that he gets from from poking this person who's so innocent and believing mm. and upsetting mm. her because um, he I think he does take a lot of he does get a bit of a thrill from from causing pain in various mm. ways. And that that's all part of this, sort of wrapped up in this character yeah. as well, because um, you you feel somewhere in there might be a decent guy, but it's, I mean, there's a hell of, there's a hell of a lot of things about him which make him an absolute yeah. monster. Um, I mean, she 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 says, she, well, she sort of considers him and says that she's she's never seen eyes so full of anger when she looks at yeah. the hound, and. And when he's speaking to her about knights, um, he's always sort of debunking the myths yeah, about knights, yeah. isn't he? And, with a certain and, amount of glee. And he says, yeah, with a, yeah, exactly. And when he, he speaks about her dad, about Ned Stark, and says, um, did he say that? She says, he, he says, did, did he kill? And he, he must have killed people. And she says, yeah, but it was out of, he just, just did it because he mm. had to. And he basically says, yeah, he was, he was lying yeah. to you. And he says, "Killing's the sweetest thing there is," yeah. um, and you know that's what knights are for—to kill people. Yeah. And um, he he describes, he says, of all the different pe- types of people he's killed, from like lords to knights to peasants to women and children, and he says of them, "They're all meat, and I'm the butcher." Yeah, yeah and uh, and you're right; he's very conflicted here because I th- I think behind these words is a great sadness that this is true. But it's the kind of the bitter mm. cynicism of somebody who wishes the world is other than it was, but has accepted that it's not. Mm. It's it's this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, but I can't do anything about it, so I'm going to embrace it. Rather than yeah. somebody like the mountains, say, who would never think this is wrong, he would think this is brilliant. I kill all the people. That's what I'm for. You know? Yeah. Yeah. He also, um, when Sansa speaks of... Um, of her uh, of, of going to the godswood to mm. pray um he's he's obviously a, he doesn't believe in god as well and he he trots out this line which is i mean not unfamiliar um now i mean this is a lot of people's reason for not believing in god um that he points out all the bad things that have happened in the world and people like um Tyrion mm. as well and says you know what kind of god would have made that kind of th- these kind of things mm. happen and sort of laugh, effectively laughs at what Sansa says and says, you know, the gods are as real as your stories about mm. knights. It's it's all 
it's all rubbish. It's, it's all yeah. a lie. And um, I thought I, the, there are two really interesting things in this. One is that Sansa somehow is still protesting that knights are real and nice and good. I mean, for fuck's sake, how mm. much more evidence do you need that it's not true? Um, mm. And and again, I, mostly what I hear in the, in the Hound is is a sense of pain out of injustice. Like I don't I I don't think he's kind of like um, he's not happy about what he's saying at all. He, he in fact I think mm. he wishes it wasn't true, but he's just like I've seen what I've seen, and therefore this is the case. Um, and then here in this little mm. girl who believes otherwise, he's like. He, you know, he, yeah. he infuriates him and fascinates him and gives him a kind of hope that he hates all in one little package. A great scene, great character, great character. Yeah. Um, now, Sansa goes to sleep eventually, goes back to her room, falls asleep, has this nightmare. She's having these nightmares at the moment about, obviously, the, the very the terrible stuff that happened to her when the mob attacked mm. the royal party and she only just survived because of the hound and she has this dream where she's pulled off a horse and attacked and she shouts for help for all the different knights and people around her and nobody helps her and she ends up being stabbed Mm. she wakes up to find blood in her bed and it's because she's had her first Mm. period and um she's so terrified she tries to burn you know the mattress and the sheets and everything to hide it um but you know, she it, obviously she doesn't manage to to hide it, and um, she's taken before the mm. queen, <clears throat> and the queen sort of says, you know, did you not expect, did you not know this was going mm. to happen? And Sansa's response is, she expected it to, she she was told about it by a mum, but she thought it'd be less messy and more magical. Yeah. And I just thought here, does this get to the root of a lot of Sansa's problems? The fact that she's been protected too much from reality, and that for for all the sort of all the love that Catelyn and, and Ned had for her, they didn't prepare her enough for the realities of the world, really. And they tried to protect... Mm. Like, like like parents tend to do yeah. sometimes, try to protect her too much, and it's actually had a negative mm. effect. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, that's definitely... I think that's definitely one of the, the, the roots of it. Um, but, I mean, this brings me back to thinking that Sansa must be a little bit simple, because how, after a year of basically having an experience that could not have been better tailored to destroy that protected environment. How does she still believe mm. it? Um, mm. And, uh, I mean, you know, she's a kid uh, and so on, but, um, uh, you know, so I, you know, you don't want to be too harsh to her, but at the same time, like, mm. maybe start to think that perhaps it's not going to be as good as you might have thought it was. Um and yeah. and oh man, I mean, I just but above everything else in this scene, I felt so sorry for her. Like there's a there's a franticness mm. in um in in when she tries to burn her bedding, which there isn't in the TV series. She does this in the TV series, but it's much more like um it's it's much it's over much quicker. In this, she burns the sheets and then drags the mattress over to the fireplace and tries to burn that. So it's just <laughs> I mean, it's this 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 thing that's horrifying. Like, but there's a bit of you that laughs in a horrified way because trying to burn a mat, a whole mattress, what one corner at a time, <laughs> um, and then and and so there's this there's this um, haste and this uh, she's, this distress, 
and and then of all the people in the living universe that she needs to go and talk to about this, she has to go and talk to Queen Cersei Baratheon. I mean, for fuck's sake. Like, like I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy, having to talk through a really, really, really significant and difficult moment in young life with a character as unpleasant as Cersei. Bloody hell. Yeah, and Cersei basically says, you think this is bad, wait till you yeah. have a child. Oh, thanks, um, wait till nice, childbirth. good, top surrogate <laughs> mothering there, Cersei. Yeah, she, she remembers actually when, she, when Joffrey was born, and um, it's just another window into this loveless marriage she was in whereas when she was having Joffrey Robert as he tended to do when she was having Mm. children was out hunting um, and didn't want to be Mm. around her and um, in contrast Jamie um, sort of threatened to kill anybody who tried to stop him being at her bedside Mm. um, when she had the baby and um, it's funny when you see these little things about Jamie and Cersei that were it not they were brother and sister, it'd be quite a romantic relationship, wouldn't it? Especially from uh, Jamie's uh, point of view. Yeah, but that's quite a big what if, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it seems to be fundamental to the whole thing that Cersei certainly definitely likes keeping it within the family. Um, yeah. So it's doubtful <laughs> yeah. that if they weren't related that she would have shagged him at all. Yeah. Um, we, we get a an idea of just how uh, another example of just how damaged Cersei is mm. as well when the, the final part of this um, this chapter she says that Robert never really liked Joffrey um, because he cried when he was in Robert's arms and Robert's bastards always sort of gurgled and were really like happy mm. um, in mm. his arms and she said Robert, Robert needed to be loved and he always just went wherever he was liked and loved and um, she she ends by saying um, that love is poison, mm. um, which just it kind of Her sums entire character, what, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how sort of damaged yeah. she is. Yeah. And on that downbeat note is where we end this this week. <laughs> yeah, but stay <laughs> Sorry, in your seats so for a rendition of "Happy Days Are Here Again" and the national anthem, ladies and gents. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the most downbeat we've ended a podcast on. It is. It's just, but, I, I don't know where to go from that. Just, uh, <laughs> but anyway, um, uh, weather's been lovely, hasn't it? Oh, hang on. Um, uh, well, here's where you, here's where you go from it. Next up is part eight. If you're reading along with us, it's this one. This part's called the Prince of Winterfell, mm. and we're reading from page six eight nine, which is the next chapter. Let me just bring it up. It is. Six, eight, nine. It's a chapter about John, which begins, It was dark in the Skirling Pass. And we're reading, you've got about, this is really short. You've only got 40 pages to read. We're only going as far as page 730, which, oh, it's actually 732. Um, A chapter about Sansa, which begins, They had been singing in the Sept all morning. It sounds like a thrilling chapter. It does. It sounds like a right old knees up, doesn't it? <laughs> um, yeah. So that's the that's the part to read for next week, and um, and we will discuss it then. 
as ever, if you have any uh, feedback to give to us um, about what's going on in the book or about the podcast in general, you can send it through to sharkliveroilpodcast at gmail.com. That's sharkliveroilpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can get us on that there Twitter. It's at sharkliveroil. Um, and yeah, that's pretty much that's pretty much all I've got to say. But Dave, it's time for what's fast becoming my favourite feature of the podcast. Your final thoughts. I really need to start preparing these, don't I? <laughs> no, I love it. You just <laughs> you just come up with something off the top of your head. And yeah, Sum you want to be careful though, because I'm going to start I'm going to start leaving the book behind and just start talking about like the flight of birds or something. Just being like, isn't it interesting the way they stay aloft? Um, I think I think the big takeaway from this is um, like more deepening in in quite a disturbing way of the character of the hound. Um, big setup for John like I really don't know where that's going to happen like I've I've sort of stopped expecting it to be to have payoffs for particular plot yeah. points within individual books because this is a George Martin novel um but I am kind of wondering where it's going to go with this because it's either going to be a really small thing and he's going to kill her next time or you know I don't know where else it can go why else would you incorporate a kind of uh, uh a living wildling who may have a reason to like and may have a reason to hate Jon Snow still being alive um and um and what's the other thing oh yeah theon (laughs) (laughs) like there are people in this book who are far worse than theon fucking billions of them but none of them fill me with the same sense of the banality of evil as theon theon's just rubbish and evil Rubbish and evil. Maybe that could be his follow-up to my poor life choices. <laughs> Rubbish and evil. The Theon Greyjoy story. <laughs> I reckon that's the, that's the unofficial um, the unofficial biography. I'll get writing. I'll get writing. <laughs> Rubbish and evil. <laughs> okay. Well, while you head off to write that, we will uh, we will be back with the next part, the Prince of Winterfell, um, in very well next week but probably sooner because we're getting through these very quickly at the moment until then until then goodbye